Mike Zimmer is coming for the Packers, and he's coming straight up the middle. Blue 58! Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Blue 58, the official podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm John Meerdink here with you for another episode. Very exciting to be here after a Packers win, and there's a heck of a lot of news to talk about this week, so let's dive right in. First and foremost in news this week, we've got to talk Tiari, the Packers offensive lineman, has just signed a big deal New contract extension that's going to take him through the end of the 2020 season. According to Tom Silverstein of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the contract is worth up to $51.67 million. New money average is about $12 million. That puts him in the top five for left tackles in the NFL. Tom says that puts him in the top five for offensive linemen. Depending on how you skew the numbers, uh, that is maybe not true. Uh, It seems like a lot of money maybe for David Bakhtiari, but I think this is actually a really good deal for the Packers. And it's actually going to only become a better and better deal for the Packers. So let's break this down just a little bit. So $51.67 million maximum value for the contract. That includes some, some bonuses, some incentives, and things like that. There's a really useful website out there called SpotTrack. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce it. It's S-P-O-T-R-A-C dot com. And they do a really lo- a really good job breaking down the value of contracts throughout all the major sports leagues, the NFL in particular. So you look at the value of contracts for offensive linemen throughout the NFL. Bakhtiari's is actually pretty reasonable. Depending on which numbers you use, Bakhtiari either ranks 12th or 13th in the NFL in overall contract value among offensive linemen. The most valuable contract right now in the NFL for an offensive lineman is Tyron Smith for the Dallas Cowboys. He's their left tackle. Very, very good player. Total value of his contract, $97.6 million. Bakhtiari, not in that league as a player, not in that league as a contract. Only just over $50 million, at or around 50 to $51 million. While his year-by-year salary is going to rank much higher on that list, particularly among tackles, he's tied for the fourth highest per year average on his contract among tackles. The overall value of his contract is going to be much lower. And considering that it's a four-year extension that's going to kick in after this season, Bakhtiari is an absolute steal here. What makes this even better for the Packers is that Bakhtiari is young, and there's going to be other players who get contract extensions in the near future. The Packers timed this deal really well, both on their end and just with the age of Bakhtiari in general. Not a whole lot they had to do with how old David Bakhtiari is or the quality of a player that he is for his age, but With Bakhtiari getting this contract extension now, they're going to lock him up through some prime earning years. So, by the time they have to re-up with Bakhtiari again, the market is going to have shifted so that his deal now is going to be an incredible deal. They may have to pay a little bit more down the road if they decide to bring him back for a third contract with the Packers, but... Over the, the life of this contract, assuming that he stays pretty consistent, this is going to be a pretty good deal for the Packers, I feel. Speaking of consistency, I think that's one of the real values 
to David Bakhtiari as a player. Now, you run into a little bit of a problem with some of, some of the advanced or grading type stuff with Bakhtiari. I, I almost said advanced stats. I'm referring to stuff like Pro Football Focus, and my feelings on Pro Football Focus are well known. I don't think anybody's going to confuse me with a big fan of their work because, frankly, they don't show their work. Uh, and they've hidden a lot of the stats that they used to offer to the public behind a uh, prohibitively high paywall. But Bakhtiari regularly ranks among the worst offensive tackles that pro football focus tracks. I think there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, he doesn't, first of all, get a lot of help from the Packers. Typically, Bakhtiari is in charge of neutralizing a pass rusher one-on-one. They give him no help from an interior lineman. They typically don't give him a lot of help from a tight end or a back. It's pretty much one-on-one David Bakhtiari versus a pass rusher. So he ends up giving up a lot of pressures, but it's not necessarily entirely his fault. But weak though he may sometimes be, you always know what you're going to get. He's not a sieve. He never gives up those Olay-type pass rushes that we saw from guys like Marshall Newhouse or Darren College when they got bumped out to left tackle. He is consistent. So while he may give up some pressures, they're never just all-out misses, and they don't come that frequently. I feel like this is going to be a pretty good value for the Packers, and I like that they got it done now. May not like that they got it done because they jettisoned Josh Sitton, but that is a conversation for another day. Second headline I want to talk about this week, Sam Shields back in the concussion protocol for the Packers. This would be assuming that he has had a concussion, and by all accounts it seems that he has. This would be his third in his NFL career at least, and second within about nine months or so. Now, beyond the concern for just Sam Shields as an individual, this is bad for the Packers because of what it forces them to do in the rest of their secondary. And this is why I think you see you saw them carry so many defensive backs on their initial 53-man roster. That's a position where you can just never have too many at wide receiver, at offensive line, at outside linebacker, especially in a 3-4, and at defensive back. Really, you'll take all of the quality players that you can get, and the Packers tried to keep as many as they possibly could. With Sam Shields out, assuming for Sunday, this forces the Packers to do some serious rearranging on the back end of their defense. Demarius Randall played a little bit of inside and a little bit of outside corner during training camp. Quentin Rollins played a little bit of inside, a little bit of outside. With Sam Shields out, this forces... I think Demarius Randall pretty much to play almost exclusively on their outside. He's probably their best remaining outside corner. Quentin Rollins probably shifts inside, and then from there you have some question marks. Do you bring Ladarius Gunter up, start him at outside? Do you give Josh Hawkins a chance? What do you do? I think it's probably going to be Gunter. And I think they're probably going to continue to move players around, though I would be surprised if we saw Demarius Randall move as much as we've seen him move in the past. Was pretty solid against the Jaguars, but Quentin Rollins was not. That's why I think that you're probably going to see Rollins stay mostly inside this week. Randall will stay outside, and they'll probably just let Ladarius Gunter do his thing on the outside. 
He seems like a bit of a better body type for the outside than does a guy like Quentin Rollins, but we will see what the backers do on Sunday. Finally, one last headline, and this is one we've been waiting for for quite some time. The Packers and the rest of the NFL have finally unveiled those color rush uniforms. Not a big fan of color rush as a concept, but the uniforms that we got for the Packers, I think, are about the best case scenario. Packers will wear their traditional yellow helmets, white road jerseys, and white pants for their home game against the Chicago Bears later this year. I think this is about as well as this could have worked out for the Packers. They don't have to design some absurd-looking new uniform, probably yellow. They don't have to wear green pants, which would have been weird. They just get to wear something that's pretty nondescript, I guess would be how I would describe it, and get this whole color rush thing out of the way. I kind of would have liked to see the solid green uniforms. That would have been fun. There is some historical precedent for that. They wore solid green uniforms in the late 50s. But ultimately, this whole exercise is just kind of pointless. It's kind of silly. The uniforms don't look that good. And if the NFL is really trying to come up with something interesting, I don't think this is it. White over white is fine. Uh, The Packers have some history of wearing white at home. For the first two games of the uh, 1989 season, they wore white at home. That was a win over the Buccaneers and a one-point, or a loss to the Buccaneers, sorry, and a one-point win over the New Orleans Saints. So they've done it before. This will be the first time in quite a while that they've done it again. I don't know. I'm not super super thrilled over the whole color rush thing to begin with. If this is what the Packers were going to have to do, they might as well make it as painless as possible. I don't think these are that bad. And if that's the best thing that anybody can say about the color rush, I think the NFL may want to just reconsider it. There are some interesting other ones. Got a bit of a brief look at what the what the rest of the league is going to be wearing. The Seattle Seahawks look very, very interesting. They're wearing their bright lime green alternate alternates, uh, green over green. That's certainly a unique look. Minnesota Vikings do not look super hot. Uh, they're purple uniforms, purple pants, and then they're wearing gold numbers on those uniforms. So, eh, I don't know. Don't love the whole color rush thing to begin with, but Packers get out of it more or less unscathed. All right, here in just a couple minutes, we're going to talk about that Packers-Vikings game. It's going to be normal uniforms for both teams this Sunday, and I think the Vikings are going to be in a position to put a little bit of a hurt on the Packers. We'll see what they do. That's coming up. But first, want to tell you a little bit about how you can get in touch with here with us here at The Power Sweep. We've been doing a little bit more interactive stuff both on Facebook and on Twitter recently, and I want to remind you that those are two great places for you to get in touch with both Gary and me at The Power Sweep. Both places tap the ad sign or type the ad sign, then The Power Sweep. Uh, that'll get you to our Facebook page and our Twitter page. If you want to get in touch with us via email, we do check that regularly. It's thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about the the website, uh, things you'd like to see us cover, any questions you might have about things that are going on in the world of the Green Bay Packers. All right, let's talk some Vikings. Blue 58! So, the Minnesota Vikings, defending NFC North champs, much though it pains me to say, 
We know all about Adrian Peterson. We've talked at length in the past about the Teddy Bridgewater injury and what that does to their quarterback situation and the subsequent trade for Sam Bradford, who didn't even play this week, may not play this week against the Packers, although that remains to be seen. I would have to imagine that the Vikings want to get him up to speed as quickly as they can. We know about the Vikings wide receivers. We know they got a pretty decent tight end in Kyle Rudolph. But the engine that really makes this team go is their defense. Got some pretty decent corners on the outside. Harrison Smith is probably the best safety in the NFL. I don't think there's anybody I would take about uh, above him. Earl Thomas in Seattle may be a little bit faster, but Smith is so big, so strong, so fast. He's great in coverage. He's great against the run. He's a great pass rusher, believe it or not. But the mind behind this defense is really the most important thing. Mike Zimmer has been an excellent defensive coordinator in the NFL for a long time, and now he is the head coach of the Minnesota Vikings. He's done a pretty decent job against Aaron Rodgers. Rodgers is 3-1 and one against Zimmer in their last four games, although they lost, Rodgers and the Packers did, lost to Zimmer in 2009 and 2013 when Zimmer was still the defensive coordinator for the Cincinnati Bengals. And Zimmer is really an innovative guy when it comes to how he uses his defense. But there's really a couple simple things that you have to know. First and foremost, the basic scheme. So Zimmer runs a 4-3 defense. So you're going to see four down linemen and three linebackers on most defensive plays for the Vikings. But Zimmer will frequently roll one one of his safeties up close to the line, start him from close to the line. So it gives you that illusion of an eight-men-in-the-box look. From there, things tend to go very similarly to how Dom Capers uses his 3-4 defense. Capers, as well as fellow defensive coordinator Dick LeBeau, were the main minds behind the 3-4 zone blitz scheme. And a zone blitz works by moving your linebackers and linemen around kind of interchangeably. Most fans should know that in a 3-4 defense, the outside linebackers more or less act as defensive ends. They're a little bit smaller than what you'd see from a defensive end in a 4-3, but they generally serve the same purpose. They set the edge for the offense, generally try to make ball carriers running to the outside turn up field instead of stretching things wide. They rush the passer, and occasionally they will drop wide into coverage. The zone blitz works by sometimes essentially rushing an outside linebacker right where the defensive end lines up and having the defensive end instead drop straight back into coverage. That is about as basic an explanation of the zone blitz as you can possibly get. What that does essentially is allow or or change what the quarterback is seeing as he drops back. So quarterbacks, this is going to get a little bit into neuroscience, oddly enough. Quarterbacks process information generally through a process known in biology and, and your brain, how your brain works as, as chunking. 
you absorb large parts of information all at once, large pieces of information all at once. So when a quarterback is reading the field, you're not looking at each defender individually. You're kind of scanning areas, trying to see where as many people are as possible at once. Your brain processes that in sort of a pattern scheme. So you see where people are, you see where things are moving in relation to what you've seen before. So this is where film study comes in. This is where uh, where experience plays a factor as a quarterback or player who's been around a while. You see what you're looking at, you recognize it, and you make your decision based on that. Doing that zone blitz sort of thing messes with quarterbacks' minds because they're seeing things that their brains essentially don't know how to process. You're seeing a big guy wearing something in the 90s, wearing a number somewhere in the 90s, suddenly dropping back into coverage, and that doesn't register. makes you think for a second. You're seeing a big, tall guy in your passing lane. You think, man, that doesn't look quite quite right, and it takes you just a couple seconds longer to process all of that information. You don't know who's going to be lining up where. In just a traditional defense, the defensive ends rush, the linebackers cover, the defensive tackles try to come up the field. The middle linebacker is going to be standing somewhere towards the middle of the field. With a zone blitz, you don't get that. People are moving all over doing different things. While Dom Capers will do something like that in a 3-4 defense, uh, Mike Zimmer will take a lot of those same concepts and run it in a 4-3. You never know exactly where people are going to be. He's really creative with moving people around. However, one thing that you do, you do know Mike Zimmer is going to do is something called the double A-gap blitz. This is something we're going to explore more in depth on Thursday with our preview of the Packers-Vikings game for this weekend. But I also want to talk about it here because I think sometimes hearing things can help you process things a little bit better as well. So the double A-gap blitz. Picture a standard offensive line. You've got two tackles, two guards, and a center. In football, each of the areas between the offensive linemen has a name. On offense, you number them. It tells running backs and whoever's running the ball where to go. Generally, the numbers go odd to the left and even to the right. So starting with the center, the first gap between the center and guard on the left side is one. The area between guard and tackle on the left side is three. The area just outside the left tackle is five, and so on. You can go all the way up to nine on that side. It does the same thing on the other side, except with even numbers. On defense, you use letters because you don't need to differentiate the sides. So the area between center and guard is the A gap. The area between the guard and tackle is the B gap. And the area right outside the tackle is the C gap. And you can continue going through the alphabet the wider and wider the offensive line gets. So if you add, if you had 11, off, 11 guys on the offensive line, the, the letters would go all the way up to F or whatever it is. The double A-gap blitz targets those two areas on the immediate left and immediate right of the area between the center and guard on both sides. What you want to do at the most basic level with the double A-gap blitz is try to bring someone through both of those gaps at once. What that means in a 4-3 scheme is that you're going to have a player directly or close to both guards, and then two players coming right up the middle over the center. 
at that point, things are just basic math. You've got four guys, defenders, coming through an area typically blocked by only three players. It's the quickest way to get to the quarterback because that's generally where the quarterback stands. A few yards back if he's in shotgun or pistol, right under the center if he's taking the snap from under center. And it forces the offensive line to change how they block things. Think about times when you've heard a play-by-play man or a coach talk about the quarterback stepping up in the pocket. Generally, when you block for pass blocking, you're trying to create sort of that horseshoe or U-shape for, the, pa- or for the, the quarterback to stand in. That's the pocket. When you rush up the middle, it changes the shape of that pocket and forces the quarterback to move. Generally, when a quarterback is moving, he's not looking down the field as effectively, he's not as comfortable, and he's going to be far less accurate when he tries to throw the ball. You can get really creative with some of the ways that you try to bring pressure up the middle. The Packers do things like this pretty frequently, and it's a little bit different in a 3-4 look because generally you'll just have the nose tackle head up on the center and bring two guys to either side of him. You saw the Packers get a sack off something very similar to that this past week in Jacksonville. Joe Thomas blitzed up the middle, got through, I think it was the left side of the center, uh, forced Blake Bortles to take a step to the outside, and Clay Matthews was waiting there for him. He had beaten his man to the outside and managed to make the sack as soon as Blake Bortles tried to step out of the center of the pocket. In a 4-3, as I mentioned, things get even more difficult for the offensive line to handle just because it's a basic math problem. This is one of the reasons I think that you've seen Aaron Rodgers struggle in the past against Mike Zimmer. Over his six career starts against Mike Zimmer-led defense, Aaron Rodgers' completion percentage is nearly a full six points lower than his career average against everyone else. These stats courtesy of ESPN.com, an article written by Mike Domovsky. Completion percentage against Mike Zimmer, 59.2. His general uh, completion percentage against everybody else is 65.1. He's averaging 40 fewer yards per game against Zimmer than everybody else, 1.3 yards per attempt uh, fewer against Zimmer than anybody else. He's being sacked more. He's throwing fewer touchdowns, and his passer rating is 15.2 points lower against Zimmer than against everyone else. I think you can attribute this mainly to that classic double A-gap blitz that Zimmer favors. Like I said, you can get really creative with some of the things that you do uh, with a 4-3 defense for that double A-gap blitz. One of the strengths of doing this out of a 4-3 is that you have those two defensive tackles lining up either immediately over or very near the offensive guards. So if the center has any trouble, there's not as many people available in the area to lend them some help. Plus, with the 4-3, you just have the one middle linebacker, which means that that second guy coming into the A-gap can come from almost anywhere. There's some interesting alignments that you'll see where you'll have the middle linebacker cross over the center and rush to his left, And the right outside linebacker will loop around behind him and try to rush from the center's right. This does a couple things. First, it forces the center to confront that middle linebacker early on, since he's rushing from much closer to where the center is going to line up initially. Then it frees up that outside linebacker to rush the quarterback much more effectively because 
Since the center is occupied with that middle linebacker, there should be an open spot available there. You can also do similar things to this with a safety blitz. And the Vikings use Harrison Smith in this sort of way very frequently because he's such an athletic big player. So they'll bring Harrison Smith a little bit closer to the line than he normally would line up, have the middle linebacker blitz over the center, and have Smith just pick his side, whichever side the center doesn't block, and blitz through that gap, shooting right up the middle towards the quarterback. Very interesting way to use Harrison Smith, and the Vikings will do some very interesting things um, in that regard. This, believe it or not, was one of the first things I thought of when I saw that the Packers were releasing Josh Sitton. The, the double A-gap blitz is designed to, ta- or to stress those interior linemen. You're going to put a lot of pressure on those linemen to block more guys, essentially, than they're capable of blocking. Packers generally will also have to devote a back to picking up someone up the middle in that sort of situation. And I think with just losing a guy who's as experienced as Josh Sitton, that does a lot to put pressure on the Packers when it comes to blocking this particular blitz. It's going to be very interesting to watch on Sunday. And how the Packers handle that will go a long way towards determining whether they ultimately end up with a win or not. It'll be interesting to see how the Packers handle it and specifically how Lane Taylor handles it in an environment that is probably going to be a lot more hostile than what we saw in Jacksonville last week. So be sure to tune in for that extended preview of what we'll be seeing from the Vikings uh, on Thursday and stay tuned to uh, for a lot of other great stuff coming up on the Power Sweep as well. Currently on the blog on thepowersweep.com. Uh, We've got some really good stuff for you uh, up there right now. We have an in-depth look at the Packers color rush uniforms, including some of the stuff that they've uh, done previously with um, with color rush. We've got the first two entries of our uh, the five series going on right now. We talked a little bit about Eddie Lacy on Monday. Julius Peppers went up Tuesday afternoon, so take a look at those and make sure you check that out when you can. We're also going to talk a little bit, or we also have talked a little bit about uh, pro football focus and the the grade that they gave Clay Matthews on Sunday. They said that he was the worst Packers player on defense this past week in Jacksonville. I reviewed some of the film from the Sunday's game, took a little bit more of an in-depth look at why they may have given him the grade that they did, and ultimately concluded that maybe they are not being quite as objective as they they claim to be being. I'm not sure where they're getting some of the information that they said that they're getting about Matthews, but saying that he struggled, I've concluded, is certainly uh, maybe not completely accurate. But anyway, encourage you to check those things out and uh, see what you think about what we've been doing on the blog recently. That's going to just about do it for this week's edition of Blue 58. Thank you so much for tuning in for another edition Hopefully we're getting better and better each and every week. Uh, don't be afraid to reach out to us via Facebook and Twitter at The Power Sweep in both of those locations. And check us out on email as well, thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We do check that regularly. So if you have any questions or comments that you would like get to get directly to us, uh, seek us out in one of those areas as well. Thanks so much for uh, reading and listening and subscribing to all the stuff that we're doing at thepowersweep.com. Uh, it makes us feel pretty great and It's nice to know that you guys are reading and listening as well. Uh, For Gary Zillavy, I'm John Meerdink. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Blue 58. We'll see you on the site and next week on Blue 58.